1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Father God, now as we turn to your word, I pray that you would be with us, that we are sinful people, that you would speak to us, though I am a sinful man, that you would speak through me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So here's, here's what we're going to talk about this morning. I find myself thinking a lot in the Christian life about the theme of waiting. Waiting is a theme that actually weaves all through the Bible. Regularly, we're called to wait Places like Lamentations 3 say the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. But I don't know, because especially in our culture, we're so go do it, go get it, go fix it. I don't know that we reflect a lot on waiting. And this morning, I actually want to talk about a specific kind of waiting. I think some kinds of waiting we're used to sort of getting, like waiting for the resurrection and the new creation and being reunited with lost loved ones, or waiting under some trial or hardship, praying for deliverance. But there's a specific kind of waiting that I am thinking about that I don't know that we often name, and it comes, really, it comes from two realities about the Christian life. So there's two things that are true about the Christian life that lead to it. And the first of those is that growing as a Christian in specific areas is often long and slow and feels full of failures. Growing as a Christian in specific areas of faithfulness is often long and slow and feels full of failures. We as Christians do grow to be more like Jesus, but it's never complete. And especially in the areas where maybe we struggle the most, it just feels like a slog. And I know of no better example of that than this great set of excerpts from uh, the old uh, writer and Christian Samuel Johnson in the 1700s, where Samuel Johnson, in his, in his kind of prayer journal, uh, he starts in 1738. He's a young man, and he has this entry about how he needs to rise early in the morning to spend time with Jesus, because he thinks that would really help him spiritually. And so 1738, he says, O oh Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth, which sounds great. But you keep reading, and you see this perennial issue. So like in 1757, 19 years later, he writes again, O oh mighty God, Enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. In 1759 then, two years after that, again, he writes, Enable me to shake off idleness and sloth. In 1764, he writes, My indolence since my last reception of the sacraments has sunk into grossest sluggishness. I love the old English guys. But my purpose is from this time to avoid idleness and to rise early. 1764, five months after that entry, uh, he resolves again to rise early, no later than six if I can. And then in 1765, the next year in his journal, he says, I purpose to rise at eight, because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for I often lie until two. 
And then in 1769, a couple years after that, I am not yet in a state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by eight and by degrees at six. In 1775, another six years later, when I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why do I try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal, and he resolves again to rise at eight which he still hasn't accomplished. And then in 1781, three years before his death and more than 40 years after his original resolution, I will not despair. Help me, help me, oh my God. He resolves to rise at eight or sooner to avoid idleness. I just point that out because that so feels like my struggle at times as a Christian, that I am seeking to grow. And there are places of real growth, but there's times I'm just like, man, am I making any progress at all year after year? So that's the first reality. And then the second reality is that even where we do grow as Christians, we often discover that there are other ways that we need to grow that we didn't even realize when we started. That even in the places that we do grow, we start to discover there's other areas where we still need to grow. I think about it like in my own life, I, I remember being, it's interesting always whenever I'm back in Lincoln, I'm remembering back in like college when I was in um, RUF and doing this, you know, trying to be really serious about faith. And I remember with my friends, there were like certain sins that we were just honed in on of like, we got to fix these sins. Um, and so, so like pride or lust, you know, 21-year-old dude, those are the things you're all kind of talking about together. Um, and then there's other sins that I was like, you know, like, like envy or greed. I was like, well, I guess I don't really struggle with those things. And now, like 20, you know, two decades after that almost, I look back and on the one hand, I have grown in some of those ways. Like the, the struggles that I had as a 21-year-old, there's been real significant growth. But... First of all, I've realized that actually those things run a lot deeper than I realized. Like, I am humbler than I was when I was 21 years old, but I'm not humble. Man, and I recognize there's pride deep in my heart that's woven into things that I haven't even realized. And I realized that actually I do also struggle with envy and greed, and that it was mostly that being a 21-year-old living on student loans and not having a mortgage that made me think that that wasn't a hard thing for me. So I come to recognize, even as I grow, that there's other areas of sin and failure and struggle that I still need to grow in. And that is a universal experience of Christians, even as we grow to be more like Jesus we also grow more aware of how far short we fall. It's often pointed out about the Apostle Paul that there's this pattern you see in his letters where in uh, one of his very first letters in 1 Corinthians, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. And that sounds humble, right? He says, I'm the least of the apostles. The apostles are the leaders of the early church. I'm the least of them. Then halfway through his ministry, in one of the, his kind of mid-letters in Ephesians, he writes to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. So now it's not just that he's the least of the apostles, but out of all the Christians in the world, he feels like he is the least. And then in 1 Timothy, one of his final letters that he wrote to Timothy, who he discipled, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So by the end of his ministry, he has a sense that he is the chief of all sinners. So those are the realities that often growth in Christ is slow and hard, and that even when we do grow, we feel like there's more things that are cropping up and more areas that we need to grow. And I just want to ask, what do we do with those realities? How do we sit with that without becoming discouraged? And the answer 
I'll just tell you the answer first, and then we're going to talk about 1 John and talk about applying that to us. But the answer is that we wait in the grace of God. We wait for perfection and growth in the grace of God. Let me show that to you here in 1 John. So if you start in the text that we read, starting in 1 John 2.28, John says, And now, little children, abide in God, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So there's a couple things going on there. John's talking about this idea of righteousness, but um, but the command is not be righteous. The command, he says, is first little children, speaking to them in this sort of dear family sense, abide in Christ, abide in God. And that's actually the core command of this whole section of 1 John, is to rest in, to live in Christ. And then out of that command, he starts talking about living righteously. So 1 John as a letter is really as a whole about this question. It is, what does it mean to truly be a Christian? What are kind of the evidences of true faith? What's the difference between just saying like, oh yeah, cool, I follow Jesus, and actually really in your life being a follower of Jesus? And there's this tension that develops in 1 John, because one of John's answers is righteousness, and we saw that there. He says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. But another answer in 1 John is also sinfulness. Righteousness doesn't mean sinlessness. Earlier in the the letter, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So righteousness, John says, is an evidence of faith, but so is awareness of sin. And a righteousness that is not aware of our sin, consistently aware of our sin, is actually also a mark that we're not truly in Christ. And that's the tension, again, that we're talking about between those callings. So then how does John speak into that? How do we then become righteous and live in that tension? Well, importantly, as we read the next few verses, notice his answer is not, so just go fix yourself and be righteous. Instead, starting in verse 1, he says this. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So he just talked about being righteous, and then he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Again, that's the second command. First, it's abide in Christ, and now it's see the love that God has for you. Particularly, see the love God has in making you his children, that you're not just a servant, you're not just somebody performing for God, but you are a beloved son or daughter, a part of his family. And then in verse 2, he names that same experience of waiting again. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Again, that is what we're naming this morning. We are God's children now, but also we're not. We're also longing for this thing that hasn't yet appeared, and we're living in that tension, waiting in that tension for the fullness to appear, waiting, importantly, therefore, in God's grace and love. Because it's seeing God's love and abiding in God and his love that's the context within which we are waiting. And then it is out of that at the end that he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And the important thing to notice there, we're going to come back to this in a couple of minutes, is that it's everyone who is hoping in, again, God, so hoping in that love, hoping in that grace, hoping in that welcome as children, 
Then out of that, they start to purify themselves and grow in righteousness and obedience. So that's the text. Let me try to, you can read that, but especially I feel like in John, it's kind of stream of consciousness. So now let me categorically try to say what that's saying before we try to apply it to our hearts. Theologically, there are two categories that John sees as related in a particular way. And I'm going to give you the theological words. And if you've been around church, these are probably pretty familiar theological words. But if not, it's not, it's not going to be too hard. The first is justification. Justification, in its narrow sense, is stating that Jesus works so that God can justify us by paying for our sins and giving us Christ's righteousness. Justification makes us right with God and pays the penalty for our sin. But in the New Testament, the word justification is also often used more broadly to include just all the stuff that comes along when God saves us. So it includes the idea we talked about that, th- that theologians call adoption, that God welcomes us into his family as a part of our justification. It includes the, this idea that we are united to Christ, which is connected to John talking about abiding in him. We're actually, through the Holy Spirit, connected to Jesus, and Jesus is in us, and we are in him, and that characterizes our life. It includes ideas like being set free from the power of sin. All of that is tied up in justification. Justification is a thing that God works in Jesus for us and that is true of you the moment that you believe in Jesus, all right? And then the second category, the theological word is sanctification. Sanctification is the name for the fact that we as Christians will grow to become more like Jesus. It it means to become holy And so as we live with God, God works in us through the Holy Spirit, and we are made over time to be more like Jesus. And there's two things we need to recognize about the relationship of those things. First, about sanctification specifically, is that that is something that we seek and work at, but it is something that God is also working in us at the same time. The Apostle Paul in Colossians, he says it, this is simple and profound. He says, for this I toil, toil, work, labor, struggling with all God's energy that he powerfully works within me. So when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about something that we're doing and God is doing together. But then the second thing to recognize is how they're related is that sanctification, that thing that we're doing and God is working in us, is motivated and flows out of our justification. And that's the big idea for this morning, that sanctification, that growing to be more like Jesus, is motivated and flows out of our justification, the fact that Jesus has welcomed and saved us already. And that's what we see in 1 John. John's writing to these people that he's calling to become righteous, and he says to them, see what kind of love the Father has given you, that you should be called children of God. And that's actually the force where then he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him, so everyone who is seeing that love that God has for you and the fact that he has this fatherly, tender love for you, that is the thing that is actually causing you to purify yourself. So as we are saved by God and welcomed in love by him, that's actually the thing that then drives our growth to be more like him. All of which is to say this, when we talk about the idea of waiting on God, waiting for growth, waiting for perfection, we're not talking about a kind of waiting that's like napping. We're talking about something that is active and engaged. We are seeking and struggling and trying to grow, but it's waiting because it's something that is still recognizing that God's needs to work, and more than that, that is constantly returning to and resting in what God has already done. We wait in the grace of God, and that is the thing that both enables us in the present to not be discouraged and that enables us to actually grow and become more like Jesus. 
So that's the idea. That's, that's, that's the whole idea of this morning. Now I just want to ask, how can we actually do and believe that? Because I think our struggle is not to, just to name that, but then to look at our hearts and say, how can we believe and wait in that grace in a way that actually changes us? And for this morning, I just want to, out of that, just speak three true things to you about God's love and the way that he feels about you, because that's the thing that enables us to wait. I just want to tell you three true things that we can fail to recognize and that keep us from having that place of waiting and resting in the grace and love of God. And the first of those things is that God delights in you. God, in his love, delights in us. I said there's lies we believe, and this is in response, one of the lies I think of is this lie that says that what, when we talk about God's love, what we mean is God's toleration. That when we talk about God's love, we just mean that God tolerates us. There's this way that I've heard preachers talk that's sort of like, because of your sin, God hates you, and your sin is ugly, and so God is repulsed by you, but in Jesus, God works so that he can tolerate your sin, so that he can kind of put up with you, even though it's ugly and gross, and, you know, and he can barely stomach it, is the idea. Friends, let me tell you how the Bible talks about God's love. Uh, so take, in the book of Isaiah, let's, let's talk about Isaiah. So in Isaiah, in the second half of the book, where I'm going to read from in just a minute, Israel is in exile. They have for hundreds of years lived in sin and rebellion and idolatry. They have, in every imaginable way, they've perpetuated terrible injustices on people, and they have done all sorts of just things to mock the name of God. And so they're sent into exile, and they're facing God's discipline and God comes in the second half of Isaiah and really for 26 chapters just speaks grace and salvation to them. But when you hear the language he uses, it is not ever the language of toleration. Let me just, Isaiah 62, let me read this to you. And this is again God speaking to his people in exile for their stubborn continual sin. God says this, he says, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Did you hear that? God delights in you. And the images of this young man and young woman falling in love with each other. I mean, I, uh, Steve alluded a little bit to my, to my story, and I'm not going to tell it all here, but I recently uh, got remarried and got to walk through that maybe more recently than some of you. But for a lot of you, do you remember, have you had that time, you know, where you're, you're like in love, you're maybe even infatuated with this person and your heart just thrills and it's almost like unpleasant. You're like, man, I, this is kind of miserable because I'm so like delighted in it and constantly just my heart is so drawn to the person. That's the image that Isaiah uses for God's heart for his people while they are in exile for their sin. That image of, of infatuated, like puppy dog love, delight. Or I'll give you another example, and I could multiply these, but I think maybe especially in the circles that, that some of us are in Christianly, we, we struggle with this language of God's delight. But in Zephaniah, which is also written to God's people in exile, in the same situation where they're under God's punishment for sin, he says in Zephaniah 3.17, And the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Which is God literally saying like, 
you, like I'm writing power ballads for my love for you, my people. I am, I am coming to you and rejoicing, exulting over you, delighting in you, so much that I need to sing about you know, my love for you because mere prose is not a love. That is how God feels about his people. That is how God feels about us, and even in their sin, because remember for this morning we're talking about our struggle and sin, even in our sin, God works in Jesus to save us, and he delights over us in love. That is God's heart for you even when you failed, and that is one of the truths that we need to internalize if we're going to wait in grace. God doesn't just tolerate us, but God delights in us. A second one is that God pursues us in his love. God pursues and chases after us in his love. Second lie that I think that a lot of us believe on some level is what I think of as the halfway lie, which is that God loves us, but it's sort of like he'll meet us halfway. And that's what it means that God loves us. Um, He kind of loves us because, and as long as we also love him, there's kind of this mutuality to it. And and that's a lie, but, but for me to explain that, let me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illustrate this. And I know this is, I don't know if Matt does this sort of thing, but um, I saw this years ago, and this is one of the best ways to say it. Here is the wrong way that I think the Bible story gets told, is that if, if you imagine these two chairs, one of them is God and one of them is us, and God creates us in communion with him. In loving communion and harmony, he creates Adam and Eve in the garden, and we're in fellowship with God. And what happens in sin is that Adam and Eve turn their backs on God. And so as a result, because of their rebellion, God in his wrath turns their backs on him. And then the fellowship is broken. And what happens is that stuff happens. And then eventually Jesus comes along. And because of Jesus's work, God can turn back towards us. And then he invites us to turn back towards him. And as long as we turn back towards him, then he kind of meets us in love. That's how the Bible story gets told. And I'll tell you, like, I mean, I grew up in evangelicalism. Like, I think I would have summarized the gospel as something like that. It's not the story the Bible tells, though. And to show that to you, let me just walk through what happens in the Bible. So, yes, God creates us in loving, communing fellowship with him. And, yes, in our sin, we turn our back on God and break relationship. Adam and Eve rebel, eat the fruit from the tree. That's the first sin. But what happens right away in Genesis 3? Does God then sit in heaven and turn his back? No, he comes and he seeks out Adam and Eve, and he comes to them, and he actually I mean, gives them a chance to repent and seek mercy, and they don't, and there are consequences for that, but he also promises them this hope of a, of a savior to come, and he puts them in this place where, um, where he, he gives them fig leaves to cover themselves and protects them. Next chapter, right? Cain rebels against God in his anger and kills Abel, right? But what God does is he comes and talks to Cain. And even though, again, there's judgment, he also actually provides for the the safety and care of Cain. And you you keep going a couple of chapters later, humanity builds this great tower to try to reach to heaven and refuse to spread out and fill the earth the way they're supposed to in their sin and rebellion against God. And what God does then in chapter 12 is there's these scattering of nations. And so he comes and he calls Abram and he says, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to all of the nations. And again, he moves towards people. And and, and over and over, right, in, in the judges and in the kings, you have these people turning their back on God and God constantly keeps sending prophets and working and promising salvation and calling people back to himself. And, and then the exile happens, right? And again, God's people, we recognize they're in rebellion. But in the verses we just read, what God does is he comes and he says, I want to redeem you and restore you and draw you back to myself. And that's the whole story of the Old Testament is not God just sort of sitting with his back turned to us waiting, but God constantly moving back towards his people, even as they rebel and sin. 
And then what happens in Jesus isn't that finally God kind of opens the way, but what happens in Jesus is what he changes about the story is that we're in rebellion and our back is on God, and what God does is even more than what, than, than what he's been doing in that he actually, instead of just from his seat in heaven coming to us, he actually gets up and moves into our humanity and identifies with us and becomes one of us and works our salvation so that then he can draw us back to God and open the way back to communion with the Father. The whole Bible story is about God constantly pursuing in love rebellious sinners, constantly seeking after us, not waiting for us to get our act together, not waiting for us to turn around, not waiting for us to reach some level of righteousness, but in love seeking after us no matter how often we go astray. That is the story of Scripture. And again, that's another truth that we need when we wait and struggle and recognize those ongoing things. One of the great sources of discouragement as we're waiting and seeking after righteousness is that we feel like, well, if I'm not doing my part, right? If, I, if I haven't arrived at this place, then somehow God's going to be distant from me or God's not going to move towards me in love. But the God that we see in Scripture over and over is a God who moves towards us, even in our brokenness and sin, and pursues us in love. And then one last truth. God delights in us, God pursues us, and the other truth we need as we wait is that God's love redefines us. It actually redefines us. And that's what we see in 1 John 3, 2, when John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be, and he means their perfect righteousness, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That is the heart of waiting for John. We are God's children, but we're waiting and longing to fully become what we are meant to be. And as we are, as we are waiting, what we see here in First John and over and over in Scripture is this thing that we need to understand as we wait, and that is this simple fact that in Scripture, our identity and our actions are related in a certain way. Our identity and our actions are related in a certain way, which is, in John, that our actions are a result of the identity that God first gives us and not the other way around. Our identity, or our, sorry, our actions are a result of the entity or the identity that God gives us, and that identity is loved. Another lie about love that we often believe is that God loves us despite who we actually are. God loves us despite who we actually are. And you get that in your dark moments of just, man, if God really knew, really saw, really understood who I was at my core, then he wouldn't love me. But the answer in scripture, it's not that God sort of loves us, you know, just putting up with who we actually are. The answer is that God's love in Scripture actually redefines who we actually are. And that is the essence, then, of growing to be like him. God's love redefines us, and then that begins to change how we actually live and walk and act. Here in 1 John 2 and 3, what we see is that you are a child of God, if you're in Jesus Christ, period. You are a child of God. He has chosen to identify himself with you. He has adopted you as his son or daughter. He has declared his pleasure over you. He's given you the righteousness of his son, Jesus. He says, you are my beloved child. That's all about your identity, and that's all just done in Jesus. That is the definition at your core of who you are. And then out of that, he says, come to 
become that in righteousness, start to grow, to live, and walk that out. That the God who spoke creation spoke, speaks this reality that you are a loved, you are a child, you are righteous in Jesus Christ, and that's real for us, and then that's the thing that drives who we really are. And that's really essential for us to understand as we wait, because it is very easy if we don't do that for our struggle to end up being the thing that we think defines us, and that actually keeps us from growing. Um, if, you, if you hang out with me long enough at some point, because my kids always bring it up now, um, you'll hear this story when I was a teenager about how I committed vandalism one time, and um, because I foolishly told my kids this story years ago, way before I probably should have told them this story, and, um, and I got in trouble for it, but I remember I told the story to my kids, and I just remember their reaction, they're like, Dad, you're a criminal. And, and, and it, was, it was interesting in that moment to, to just recognize this thing happening because, of course, what, what you try to say to your kids is like, that was a crime, yes, and I, I had some things that happened to me because of that, but that's not, the, I, that's not my identity, right? The fact that I did that does not define who I am. But the reason that was so interesting to me was that as I watched my children, I'm like, they do the same thing with themselves, and often about things more serious than just teenage vandalism, right? They fail in some way. They have some struggle. And what they say is, well, I'm just that. I'm just a, a liar. I'm just disobedient or I'm just mean or something like that. And when you see that in a kid, you recognize that that's dangerous because if they really embrace that idea as who they are, then that's actually going to cause them to become more of that. But then the thing that strikes me out of that is that that's the same thing that we do too, isn't it? I mean, how often have you, in a moment of struggle, just said, I'm just blank? And whatever you put in that blank, whatever sin, whatever issue, whatever addiction, whatever thing it is, if you say, that is at my core who I am, that actually then undercuts our ability to be anything else because our identity always shapes our actions. And so what God does in Jesus instead is he comes to us and says, no, that sin is not your identity. Yes, you're called to struggle against it and fight, and it might be hard, and you might have that like 40 years of just, Lord, I feel like I'm beating my head against the wall experience. But what he says is, in Christ, your identity is as a beloved, righteous child of God, and it is by believing that and standing in that and soaking in that that you'll actually begin to find your actions begin to change. Because if you're just that blank, whatever that thing is that you put in there, then it's going to be really hard for you to ever not be that. But if you are a beloved child of God, then you can look at those things and say, that's not who I am. That's not what defines me. I'm defined by Jesus, and so I'm going to seek to struggle in that courage of the identity that he gives us. Or J.I. Packer puts it another way that's really helpful, I always think. J.I. Packer, the theologian, says, growing in holiness is simply a consistent living out of our family relationship with God into which the gospel brings us. It's just a matter of the child of God being true to type, True to his father, to his savior and to himself. It's the expression of one's adoption as a child into one's life. It's a matter of being a good son as distinct from a prodigal or a black sheep in the royal family. And I love that image. God is his perfect father, right? It's not that he looks at you as a prodigal. It's not that he looks at you as a black sheep. He says, you are my beloved son. I'm delighted in you. My beloved daughter, I'm delighted in you. Out of that, begin to seek to obey. So those are the hopes I just want to speak to us this morning, and I'm just going to leave us to just soak in those realities, friends, that here's, here's the reality of the Christian life. 
that you, as you seek and pursue Jesus, there's ways that you will grow over time, and that's good and important, but it's going to still be a struggle. And some of the struggle you haven't even realized that you are facing yet. But as you do that, do that as someone who is resting in and waiting in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, a God who delights in you even as you are, even as you struggle, a God who pursues you even as you wander, even as you fail, a God who works in you and gives you a new identity in Jesus Christ and so calls you to simply work to become what you already are. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. Thank you for the ways that you have sought after me and drawn me to yourself and just called me your son. I thank you for each of these sons and daughters here that you have pursued and sought and loved and drawn to yourself. And I pray that you would just speak to them this morning peace and joy and hope as they soak in the delight and love that you have for them. Lord, as we experience that love, may it work in us to grow us to be more like Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory and honor forever. Amen.